The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. You too, Scott. Thank you. And hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And here's what's ahead this hour. China's crackdown comes for crypto. As the country moves against cryptos yet again, banning all but ownership, how much of a long-term headwind is this for Bitcoin? Or is it actually a buying opportunity? And is there risk? It could happen here. We'll dive into all of that soon. Plus, as volatility picks up in the markets, our guest is looking for what she calls Goldilocks stocks. We'll break down what they are and three names to own. And on the outside, they looked calm and ready, but internally it was a panic. While the company appeared to have everything under control publicly, internal documents show panic at Robinhood during the GameStop saga. We've got all those details. But we begin with today's markets after a topsy-turvy week. Dom a topsy-turvy a- week, Kelly. And you know what name was not in your headlines? Evergrande. <laughs> Not, men, not one mention there, right? Because it seems like the markets have largely shrugged that off. Here's the reason why. It's a fairly flat market. The Dow Industrial is just about flat on the session, 34,759. The S&P 500, 44.50 flat, and then just down two-tenths of 1% for the NASDAQ composite. What's important about that is that the Dow and the S&P at these levels have gotten back everything they lost during that market melees on Monday tied to the Evergrande real estate development fiasco developing in China. The Nasdaq composite is hovering just below getting back all of its losses from that point. So the markets overall have largely shrugged this off. We'll see if that continues. As for the action so far on this kind of risk adjusted basis here overall for the week, it has been energy and financials that have been the two top performing sectors this week, despite the fact that we had all of that market turmoil on Monday. Communication services, the worst performing sector, one stock in particular, FB, Facebook, has a lot to do with that communication services underperformance there. And then take a look at the kind of juxtaposition as things that are developing with, with regard to leadership in this market. Over the last week with the volatility, it has been travel-related. We'll call them the reopening trade. Those stocks have done really well. Expedia up 12%, Norwegian Cruise Line up 10%, and Diamondback Energy, oil and gas, up 9% as well. So the reopening trade in full force right now. However, where is it not playing out so much? It's mega cap technology and communication services, as I I just mentioned here. Look at Apple up about one third of one percent. Microsoft down a half a percent and Alphabet up two thirds of one percent. Yes, they're okay for this kind of a market. But Kelly, look at that reopening trade of big outperformers so far. We'll see if that trend continues as well. Back over to you. That is one to watch. Dom, thank you very much. Now, after this up and down week, investors are rightly searching for solid ground in the markets. My next guest is bullish on stocks overall, saying the multiple on the S&P 500 has dropped to 20 from 22 back at the start of the year. And she has some specific ways to play the big global trends we're seeing, like China's political crackdown and the U.S. supply chain woes plaguing businesses. Joining me now is Nancy Priol. She's the Essex Investment Management Co-CEO. Nancy, it's great to have you just top level. You know, are there any headlines out there that would really you know, panic you out of stocks? Well, I would hope nothing would actually panic us out of stocks, because as we know, over the long term, markets do go up as the economy grows. And as you mentioned, the valuations are not as high as they were at the beginning of the year. Having said that, though, there certainly are things that we are paying attention to and watching. 
First and foremost, of course, is the showdown that we're seeing in Washington over both the infrastructure bill, the reconciliation bill, and very, very importantly, the budget bill. We do not want to see a government shutdown. We do not like the brinksmanship over the debt ceiling. Our best guess, however, is that all of these will get resolved favorably for both the economy, the country, as well as for the markets. We're also watching China, but we think that Evergrande in itself is going to be somewhat isolated. We're somewhat more concerned about the move of China back to a more planned economy. But what that creates for us is the opportunity to benefit from the reshoring in the United States. Yeah, and I want to get to some plays there. I think it's actually a really interesting uh, thesis that you have. But if we could just dwell on this for a moment, it is ironic Mm -hmm. that if everybody wants to be structurally long stocks, but their price keeps going up, it just becomes more and more expensive to get in. Now, again, we can argue about the multiples and earnings, and this is how things are supposed to work. But I guess what I'm saying is, on some level, should people be embracing a, a correction, a, you know, the down days that we might have. The, uh, we were like, it's like we're ch- chasing stocks in, a, in an upward line. We think you need to be prudent here, which is why we call it a Goldilocks economy in a Goldilocks market. You want to find companies that have excellent growth prospects, particularly in industries that are disrupting the way that we've done business in industries that are capitalizing on all of the phenomenal research and development that is going on in this country, but you don't want to pay too much for that growth. And so we want to find companies that are beating on both the top and the bottom line, companies where that growth rate um, can continue for a number of years, where the competitive situation is important. For investors, the other thing that I think it's really important to keep in mind is a long-term time horizon. Yeah. The market reacts to all of the news of the day. Yeah. And what might be bad news today could be good news tomorrow. But as investors, if you pick your spots carefully and stay patient, that is how you compound your returns over the long term. Well, we've been teasing people with some of the names that you do like on the screen here. I'm going to rattle off some of them which are in the healthcare space, some smaller companies like ViewRay, Verisite, Castle Bioscience, Avid Bioscience. Then we have the disruptive tech names like an Upwork. We've had Hayden Brown on the show a number of times. You like Revolve and e-commerce fashion play. And then I want to get to this theme you mentioned uh, as it regards what's going on with China and the supply chain. The reshoring of manufacturing is a big one for you. And actually, a company we haven't talked about in a while, 3D Systems, ticker Triple D, is one of the beneficiaries, you think, so is Advance 6. Tell me how much upside potential you think these names have. So we think there's tremendous potential in both of those names. They're a little bit different. 3D Systems, as you mentioned, is a way to benefit from what we used to call 3D printing, what's now called additive manufacturing. Mm. This is a trend that was probably not quite ready for prime time when these companies first came public and there are a couple of pure plays in the industry, but we think now is ready for prime time. What we like in particular about 3D systems is that they are moving out of some of the more competitive parts of the market and really making a big play in um, in uh, products for, for healthcare. So they signed a deal, sorry, with an Israeli company for... Um, 3D printing of breast implants. When you think about the need for precision and very precise specifications, particularly for something that's going to go in a human body, 3D printing is an excellent way to get there. They've beaten very nicely over the last two quarters, raised guidance going forward, 
And um, we again, we think this is an industry that today is ready for prime time. And the stock was at 60 earlier in the year. Is it 30 today? Wow. So as we take advantage of rotations in the market, this is a stock that's been out of favor that could come back into favor. Maybe a good example there of what to do uh, when things don't go your way. And again, Nancy, I love additive manufacturing and realized that was the, the new lingo for the 3D printing. It was all the rage back in the day. It's great to have you here today, Nancy. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Nancy Pryle joining me from Essex Investment Management. Now to the price of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies taking a tumble after the People's Bank of China said all crypto transactions in the country are illegal. Beijing has cracked down sharply on crypto this year. It's banned banks from providing crypto-related services. It's even tamped down on mining operations. Is all of this a long-term headwind for Bitcoin or a buying opportunity? And what if it happens here? Joining me now are Emily Parker, CoinDesk Managing Director of International Content, and Meltem Demirs, CoinShares Chief Strategy Officer. Emily, I'm sorry, but unless you've got the blue background, you're throwing me for a loop here. I know. I'm trying to mix it up a little bit. (laughs) Aren't we all? Uh, So, listen, the... Many people are pointing out that every time China has cracked down on, on crypto, going back to 2013, it's been a buying opportunity. Is this time different? Well, um, I think what's really interesting about this crackdown is that in the past, if you had headlines like this coming from China, you would wake up to a total collapse in the Bitcoin market. And that's actually not what happened. Yes, Bitcoin fell, but on the scale of Bitcoin price crashes, this isn't even that dramatic. In fact, according to the Coindesk XPX price index, Bitcoin dipped below $40,000 earlier this week. That's lower than what we woke up to this morning. So, you know, I think what we're starting to see is that the Bitcoin market is getting a little bit more resistant to shocks from China, which used to really, really create shockwaves all over the all over the global market. And Meltem, the really interesting thing to me is the geopolitics of this all of a sudden, where people are talking about how being anti-China is pro-crypto or, or pro-crypto. But you know what I'm saying? There's almost this idea. And in fact, I think Senator Toomey tweeted something uh, like this just a short while ago, where he basically says this is a strategic advantage for the U.S. is the best thing that could happen for crypto bulls, China's crackdown, because it makes those in the U.S. who might otherwise want to police this industry more heavily think that perhaps it could be a long-term strategic advantage to have the intellectual capital here. I would love to believe that. Uh, But look, Washington, D.C. has been increasingly aggressive in its stance towards cryptocurrencies. We've seen this not only from the SEC, but from certain members of of Congress as well. I think at the end of the day, what this comes down to is um, China banning crypto many, many times. They've been doing this every year since 2013. You can only ban something once. And if you have to ban it repeated times, it's probably because banning it is impossible. Again, this to me highlights the strength of of Bitcoin as a monetary system. Bitcoin is the world's first and largest peer-to-peer electronic digital money system. And the fact that it can't be shut down or curtailed by the CCP, I think, is very strong evidence that Bitcoin will continue to proliferate. And again, as Rachel alluded to, you know, the CNY Bitcoin trade pair has been declining in prominence. China's crackdown on Bitcoin mining has been a huge loss for China, over $13 billion of annual revenue being lost um, in in China. And that includes losing out on the taxes and, and the revenues that would go to power producers and local municipalities. So again, I think, you know, this could be a huge strategic opportunity for the United States. But unfortunately, we have not seen a unified stance on this in Washington, D.C. And I continue to wait and wait to see what type of policies we'll see. But so far, I think it's been very ambiguous. And it looks like the SEC is going to use case law to set precedent, which is disappointing. Well, 
Emily, if you could offer a thought on that as well. I mean, even I think the recent appointments at the OCC, among others, there people are trying to read between the lines of every regulatory move to figure out what more regulation we could see. You know, is it the good kind of regulation that just kind of like explains, you know, where to draw the lines? Is it something much more severe with regard to what's defined as security or not a melting obviously reference case law approach? Um, what do you think is evolving? And I, I almost wonder, is there a plan or, or are we just going to, is everyone just try, kind of trying to figure out as we go, depending on the real world events that are taking place here? I think that's actually exactly what's going on. People are just trying to figure it out as we go, especially in the United States. I think it's important to note that we cannot compare the U.S. and China in terms of how they see cryptocurrency. China very clearly sees cryptocurrency as a threat and as a negative. They've made that unabashedly clear. The United States is more, as you said, just trying to figure it out. And I think the biggest obstacle in the United States isn't necessarily that regulators are unfriendly to crypto. I don't think we have evidence that they see crypto in a bad light. It's that there's a lack of clarity around crypto in the United States. States. You know, the United States, a lot of things are done on a state by state basis, in particular in terms of um, regulating exchanges. It, it goes state by state. There's so many different agencies in the United States. Um, there's a lot of dissent even within the crypto community about how things should be done. So I don't think that the U.S. is unfriendly. I think, as you said, they're still trying to figure it out. But clarity is generally not a good lack of clarity is generally not a good thing for financial markets. So this is something that, you know, we're going to have to get our act together pretty soon. And Meltem, I'll give you a final word on this if you want to just kind of quickly expand on, on what approach you think would be better from the from the crypto bulls point of view. And what are the risks of the authorities going out about it in this way? Look, at the end of the day, I think regulatory uncertainty has been one of the biggest perceived challenges around cryptocurrencies since the inception of the formal crypto market. And again, what we've seen as a result is the crypto market was built entirely outside of the existing financial system. $2 trillion market cap, trillions of dollars of economic value exchanged on an annualized basis. And all of this is happening without touching the existing financial system. Now we're trying to integrate the two. And again, it's very difficult to take a jurisdiction-based approach to regulation to something that has very little physicality and it's distributed in nature. So again, I think this is really a fundamental ideological challenge. And it's also, frankly, the tension between the battle for control and centralization, which is something the U.S. government is in pursuit of with its crackdown on encryption and financial freedom and financial privacy and freedom of speech. And so this battle between centralization and control and this world of decentralization that we're pursuing in the crypto space and the Web3 space, they're going to continue to be at odds and that tension needs to get resolved somehow. And that will be very dramatic when it happens. Yeah. Guys, and the stakes higher than ever, obviously, given the participation in, in not just Bitcoin, but the entire space, including NFTs. Uh, we appreciate your time today uh, for delving into this topic. Meltem Demirs and Emily Parker on the ramifications of China's moves. Coming up, the iPhone 13 and all of its variations hits shelves today. But shares of Apple are on pace for their third straight week of losses and first monthly decline since May. Why are investors selling into this launch? Plus, two banks are becoming one in the latest financial tie-up. We'll speak with the CEO of Valley Bank about the merger and how they're looking to expand their tech and VC banking business. The stock has had a stellar run in the past year, more than doubling. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Back to the exchange, everybody. Apple's iPhone 13 is here. There are the lines in New York City. Pretty long, but the stock's been an underperformer lately. Will this be the revenue bonanza Apple is betting on? Apple's 10% climb this year, trailing other big tech names like Google, Facebook, and Microsoft, not to mention the broader market. For more, I'm joined by Amit Daryanani. He's a fundamental research analyst at Evercore ISI, who will give us an idea of sales based on smartphone data out of China. And Joanna Stern is personal technology columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joining us with her review of the iPhone 13. Great to have you guys both here. Joanna, I'll start with you. You say it's all about the battery and cameras, which certainly resonates uh, with a lot of users. And Apple, you're saying, delivered in one area, but not the other. Yeah, I think the strategy is very clear now with Apple when they are doing these upgrades. What matters to consumers? Battery life and taking better photos. Makes sense. On battery life, definitely delivered. I was very impressed with all these phones lasting about an hour to two hours longer than the previous 12 model. The big one, the Pro Max, lasted two days, like basically two days, uh, a little bit less on a battery test, but like close to 24 hours on a battery test. That's nuts. It's also the phone is basically the size of Alaska. So you have to decide battery life or this giant phone that you have to drag around with you. Um, where it didn't deliver was on this new cinematic mode. Still uh, things Apple has to work out there. But the cameras itself, pretty impressive. You know, I really think a lot of people are going to go up to that pro model this year, given the leaps in camera, probably people coming from a three or four year phone. Plus, on top of that, these carrier deals are totally bananas just offering lots of money off of phones if you're going through Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile here in the U.S. I mean, maybe you can expand on that. Why are we seeing these huge offers? What does it mean and what are we to deduce about the importance of the iPhone 13 here? Yeah, well, absolutely. Is, oh, Amit, sorry, go ahead. Amit, go for it. I was going to say, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think the only thing people like better than a new iPhone is a cheaper new iPhone. And you know, the carrier promotion in the U.S., uh, as was pointed out. I would also argue, if you look at China, by the way, the average iPhone 13 is about 8% cheaper than the iPhone 12. FX is a part of it, but they're cheaper. Uh, and, and what this means is this so far has been the most successful phone launch for Apple in the last five years, barring iPhone 10. So iPhone 10 was better, but the lead times, the wait time for delivery for the Pro and Pro Max models at 28 days right now, it's been better than any other phone in the last five years, except for the iPhone 10. Well, Okay, so which put differently means it's the best phone in like two years or three years, right? So how much better is it than previous launches and what's priced into the stock? I mean, why do you think the shares have been underperforming lately? Yeah, listen, um, the underperformance, I think, was really pinned on one fear, which is iPhone 12 did really well. And the next cycle after iPhone 12 may be disappointing. So I need to pair back and wait and see how things stack up, right? So I'd say there's a lot of fear Kelly into iPhone 13 that this could be a down cycle revenues and units could be down. 
Now, to the extent the data validates that these numbers are going to be better, which versus the iPhone 12, to give you an idea at this point, uh, the wait time around 12, 13 days. Right now, wow. it's 28 days. Uh, it's a big number. And I would argue it's not a supply issue. It's a demand statement over there. Uh, so I think to the extent we get more faith that iPhone 13 could grow revenue, grow units, Apple can grow after a super cycle. I think that could help the stock work higher. There's a bit of a regulatory worry, but in fairness, that's across all of tech, not just Apple. And I know you have a $180 price target and outperform on Apple. It's really interesting that you're saying that 13 is a fear cycle because it was supposed to be the hangover. Joanna, does that resonate with you that we could actually see decent demand for this phone? If so, why? And can I add, you look amazing. Are you on an iPhone right now or is this a webcam or... I'm just curious about the so cinematic funny enough, mode. I am on an I am on an iPhone, but I'm not on cinematic mode. I'm on an iPhone 11 running special software that plugs into my computer. I have my CNBC setup down, Kelly. <laughs> we can talk about it after after the show if you want. Though you've got pro cameras, real pro cameras in front of you. Um, I think actually what Amit was saying is really interesting, right? There was this fear about this that people wouldn't upgrade, and I think that is exactly why we're seeing these deals. We saw them on the 12, but now the deals are. If you trade in your 12 for a 13, you get $1,000 off, right? So basically, you get a free phone if you're going for the pro phone. Hmm. So these are incentives to get people to upgrade every year. And that's why I dwelled on in my review why this is an incremental upgrade. Do we need this new phone every year? Certainly, there are some, the early adopters, who get a new phone every year. I am guilty. This is my job. I get a new phone every year. But does everyone need a new phone every year? And I have to, Amit, then sneak in this one final question. Why are the carriers subsidizing everybody to make this upgrade? We've talked to people in the last few weeks. Why is 5G that important to them? Why is this so important as a loss leader? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, And I'll say this, Bobby, this phone is important uh, to the 900 million iPhone users that are not on 12. For them, it's a much bigger upgrade than it's from 12 to 13. Uh, But the the reason carriers want this is if you think about carriers, they've invested multi-billion dollars buying C-band auctions, putting out the 5G infrastructure. So they've laid out a lot of CapEx, Kelly, to build out this 5G infrastructure. Now they need to get users in and get us to hopefully pay up for 5G. Hmm. And the best way to get users and subscribers is a new iPhone for them. I mean, it sounds great if you're Apple. It's like, okay, they're going to pay for it. Everyone gets a phone upgrade and, and Apple and the users all benefit. Um, and maybe at some point... The uh, carriers 5- will hate me for saying this, but if you turn off 5G, you get better battery life. So... Uh, they may not care. I don't know. They, they probably figure, well, we've got people on it and make, I don't know, makes our numbers. Uh, obviously, 5G still has a ways to go, but this is a fascinating dynamic. Joanna Stern, Amit Darianani, thank you both for joining us today. We really, really appreciate it. Coming up, the head of the CDC overruling an advisory panel on COVID booster shots in a rare move she anticipates will, quote, do the greatest good. will break down the booster's road to approval. Plus, Robinhood's internal messages during January's GameStop crisis show panic, direct contradiction, and plenty of confusion. We'll go under the hood and look at the company's reaction to what one exec called a massive liquidity crisis. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody, where markets are pretty perfectly balanced right now between the highs and lows of the session. Dow's been up 92. It's been down 116. It's up two points right now. So is the S&P. The Nasdaq's down about 15. As the markets round out what's been a pretty volatile week, the Dow and S&P are holding on to weekly gains of about half a percent. The Nasdaq basically flat, but the Nasdaq is slightly lower for its third week of losses now. Let's go over to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update at this hour. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. And here's what's happening at this hour Democrats in the House of Representatives have passed an abortion rights bill. It's meant to protect abortion services against growing Republican-backed state restrictions. The House bill, though, is unlikely to pass in the Senate. In California, thousands of people have been evacuated from their homes because of a fire that's believed to have been started by arson. The Fawn Fire has burned nearly 6,000 acres in less than two days. A woman suspected of starting the fire has been arrested. And Texas is conducting what it calls a full forensic audit of the 2020 presidential election in four of its biggest counties. The move was announced just hours after former President Trump sent a letter to Texas Governor Abbott demanding a recount. And on the news, what Arizona Republicans found in their election audit and how the Texas GOP may do its recount differently. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Well, thank you very much. Now, if you're befuddled about boosters, curious about COVID treatments, and wondering just how widely used is Biogen's Alzheimer's drug, we'll clear up all of that in today's biotech edition of Rapid Fire next. But first, a glimpse of what's in store next week with your Friday Fast Forward. It's a big week for business on Capitol Hill, with the House voting on the bipartisan infrastructure bill on Monday. Fed Chair Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will testify in front of the Senate Banking Committee on Tuesday and House Financial Services on Thursday. The deadline to avoid a government shutdown is Thursday, and there are still major roadblocks. Moving away from the Beltway, Warby Parker debuts on the New York Stock Exchange via direct listing on Wednesday. The direct-to-consumer glasses company has a valuation of roughly $3 billion. We'll get reads on the consumer with September's Consumer Confidence and Consumer Sentiment numbers. Pending home sales out on Wednesday. We'll tell us whether the housing market is still hot. Meme darling, Bed Bath & Beyond reports. Those shares are down 18% over the past three months. Can its recently announced partnership with DoorDash help turn things around? Plus, investors around the world will be closely watching China's Evergrande Group's debt payment deadline on Wednesday. That's your Friday Fast Forward. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few important stories that should be on your radar this afternoon. It's time for our special biotech-themed edition of Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Matthew Herper, senior writer at Stat News, Alethea Young, head of healthcare research and senior biotech analyst at Cantor Fitzgerald, and, of course, Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. It is wonderful to have you all on board. Let's begin with the confusion around COVID boosters, which continues as the CDC and FDA have now both endorsed Pfizer's boosters for certain people, the CDC recommending every Everyone over the age of 65 and people with underlying medical conditions between 50 and 64 that they get a shot six months after their second vaccination. For people under 50, the CDC is only suggesting boosters for those with underlying medical conditions or those who work in a high-risk environment, Meg. And then we have the CDC director overruling the staff today. What is going on? Yeah, so essentially what people need to know is this is really only for people who got the Pfizer vaccine the first time around. And if you're six months out from your second dose of Pfizer, people who got Moderna and J&J, and there are millions that fit into that category six months out, they have to wait a few more weeks. But essentially, we saw this very sort of seemingly confusing process go 
go by with the advisors voting one thing and the CDC director then coming out with a different recommendation. She just told us in a White House briefing she doesn't feel she overruled them. It was her purview to make that decision. And she essentially brought the guidance in line with what the FDA authorized. The thing about this, though, is it's going to be really tough to police. And they basically acknowledged that you got to make your own decision. It's self-attestation when you go to get your booster shot. So it kind of leaves the door open for a lot of people. Matthew, the agency confusion feeds into the confusion over, as Meg's saying, whether it's just Pfizer or which one did you get? And then this sense for people saying, well, if no one's going to check, should I just go ahead and try to get one anyway? I mean, you know, it's a it's very confusing right now. It is very confusing. This is a confusing process where you have two different actors, FDA and CDC, that make decisions. Um, And that question of whether at some point you'll be able to get a booster for a different vaccine is actually probably the biggest commercial question for these vaccines. If you're an investor, that's something you should be watching. Um, Because if you can only get Pfizer with Pfizer, Pfizer locks up um, a big chunk of the market. Um, it, It it is confusing. The uh, administration has definitely had some own goals in communication where, you know, coming out with that announcement that it was all going to be ready by September 20th before FDA and CDC had acted. Um, things could be a lot clearer here. So, Aletha, where does that leave you? I know you don't cover, you know, the vaccine makers per se, but on the question of what the general health and uh, COVID trends are going to look like going into the winter, what is your scenario analysis at this point? Well, it's sort of the same. I would say I'm confused as well. Um, but <laughs> then there's no hope. If you're confused, right. there's no hope. I'm the hope. biotech analyst and I don't have a clue. Yeah. So I guess my view is I've always thought COVID-19 was going to be something which is seasonal that we'll wrestle with. It'll be endemic, sort of like the flu. So I think the model that we'll take will ultimately be like something like the flu. There'll be vaccines, there'll be treatments. And so I think there'll be more of both coming forward in the next 12 months. So Matthew, I'll give you the final word. What's the timeline? If this ruling. And again, it's not even clear to me who reports to whom. So we had the FDA do one. Now we're getting from the CDC. So the Pfizer thing, is that locked in? If you've had the Pfizer, you go, you know, you can sign up for the booster. I think I was seeing the White House talk about like literally today. And then we just wait to hear on Moderna and all the rest of them. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, This is for Pfizer. You will wait to hear uh, for the other ones. The data is still going through FDA. They're FDA authorized. And CDC makes the final recommendation, which is sometimes a narrowing of the FDA uh, authorization. That's what. That's how vaccines basically work. So for the people who are in those groups and got Pfizer, they'll be able to get boosters soon. Moderna and J&J, you have to wait. Got it. So the FDA basically goes and then the CDC could narrow it. So, all right, I think, you know, 18 months in, starting to widen things. So like, yeah, they're, 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 they're different. But. but the CDC is the final say. Yes. Okay, I think I get it. Let's move along. Let's talk uh, from COVID prevention now to treatment. The use of therapeutics has skyrocketed over the summer in areas with low rates of vaccination and surging hospitalizations. New data from Gilead shows that remdesivir significantly reduced risk of hospitalization and high-risk patients with COVID-19. Even more treatments could be coming soon with Pfizer, Merck, Roche, all in the late-stage clinical trials for oral antivirals. Alethea, how significant is this? What's it mean for Gilead? Well, I mean, I think Gilead, a well-established player here, but an oral certainly will be an issue. Um, some of the orals require boosters, and that makes it a little bit more complicated to give to the general population because they don't play well with other drugs that people take. Um, so I think Gilead, there's still going to be a place for Gilead, certainly. I mean, they're well-established. They have an, have an incredible record here. Um, but, you know, I also like Regeneron. They have an antibody approach that has been very good and has worked in, like, preventative settings as well. So I think both of them are 
formidable. And we'll have to see what happens with the orals. But I would prefer an unboosted oral medicine. Are you? COVID. That's interesting what you mentioned about sort of the, the, the mixing there. But on shares of Gilead and Regeneron, are you positive on both? And at what point do we we had a glimpse of this earlier this year. We felt like we were starting to look at the pipelines in a post-COVID world. When does that become uh, more of a pressing issue again? I mean, I'm fundamentally positive, actually, on both companies, um, separate to their COVID situation. But I do think what happens is, is they aren't getting enough credit for the long-term revenue stream that probably will exist for COVID-19. I mean, it probably will be something like Tamiflu that will last till their IP goes. And we'll be dealing with this, unfortunately, for the next 10 years. And there'll, you know, there'll be thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that will be affected every year. So I do think it's a sustainable market for them. But both of them separately are interesting companies based on the fundamental story they have going on with their pipeline as well, ironically. And, Meg, it also seems that there's a lot of questions still about recurrence with COVID. You know, is it going to be like the flu, where if you've had it, you can get it the next year because it keeps changing or just because of its nature? Yeah, we do know that there are cases of reinfection that people get. And the big question going forward is going to be how much does this virus change uh, every year or over time? Because that's why we have to get seasonal flu shots. The virus changes so frequently. And even the flu shots sometimes aren't matched up well enough to the seasonal flu vaccines. Uh, And so with these antiviral drugs, I think there's a lot of hope. We're going to see data from Merck potentially in October, Pfizer by the end of the year. These are oral pills that you could potentially take at home at the first sign of infection or even potentially exposure further down the road. So there's a lot of hope that these will be really helpful in at least um, sort of the near term in this stage of the pandemic. Meg, why is it that we, you know, granted, maybe this is an obvious question to those who know, but why don't we have orals for the flu? We have Tamiflu. um, And I'm trying to remember, Matt and Alethea can tell me, is that oral or is that? It is oral. There's also relentless, which is inhaled. Interesting. So this application is something that's been around, of course, Tamiflu. Um, But if it becomes more common with COVID, you wonder if this could then kind of change the way that we all experience those flu shots in the future as well. All right, let's leave COVID behind. Let's talk about Alzheimer's because it's been a very, very big week for Biogen, a big summer, really. Uh, There's still many questions swirling about their treatment. So Needham this week initiated Biogen with a buy rating and a $400 price target yesterday, saying the long-term ramp for its Alzheimer's drug, Adjuhelm, is underappreciated. But this comes as Stat News reports that Adjuhelm has only been administered to about 100 patients as of September 11th. And that was after the drug got a controversial stamp of approval from the FDA this summer. Biogen shares, recall, spiked 38% back on June 7th, its second best day ever. But since topping out at $468 a share, it's down nearly 40%. It's trading around 290 Matt, what would you add in terms of sort of the data on this, the fact that only 100 people have received this? What does it tell you? Well, the 100 shows that there are big barriers to the use of this drug right now. Some of those are Medicare. We don't really know how much of it is kind of the, the feelings of the prescribing doctors. Um, but, you know, I'd be really careful from an investor perspective. You know, value calls are great, but it's also no fun to catch a falling knife. Um, and when we look at the situation, the more time Biogen loses here, the more time that's going to allow for other entrants if this does become a big market. So uh, I'd I think there are some reasons to be careful about other predictions. Remember that um, Eli Lilly has another drug which has had really probably better data uh, coming along behind this. And Alethea, from that point of view, what would you say about shares of Biogen uh, and Lilly as well and the potential for these treatments to go more mainstream? I mean, I have a neutral on Biogen. 
And the reason why is because I think the drug was inherently overpriced amongst the controversial FDA decision that probably shouldn't happen in the first place. And I guess I would add, I feel like there have been physician groups, large ones, come out and have significant concerns like Cleveland Clinic saying publicly they won't use Adibuhum. So I don't think that helps the situation along with a high price and a population that's mostly Medicare. So, you know, until I think I'm nervous about this being a continued following knife. So we're kind of waiting, trying to wait for a better entry point to accumulate the shares. So a better entry point, or could something change, Aletheia, in terms of what Biogen does with the drug here? Or could something change in terms of the insurance carriers? Well, I mean, Biogen could cut the price, would be unprecedented, right? I think the insurance carriers, the challenge is that, like, it's still your payer, your main payer, CMS, and they're going through the review process now, so we'll find out probably in the first half of the year what happens with that and whether that's accepted. Um, and I also, just like Matt said, I worry about Lilly, right? I think Lilly can come, cut the price, and I, I think the, the way you launch a drug is the way you end the drug launch. And they're not launching well. So it, it's kind of a little scary when you look across the history of biotech launches that when it usually launches slow, it never really picks up steam. Very, very interesting. Meg Terrell, will give you the final word. Well, I would just say on the Biogen situation, the one maybe wild card in all of this is that Biogen has an activist investor on its board in Alex Denner. He joined the board with Carl Icahn years ago, and he's been on the board for a while. So whether he's still in that sort of activist role is a key question, but it's been difficult to bet against Alex Denner, at least from a Wall Street perspective, I think, before in biotech. So I'd be very curious and interested to see what he does here. Wow. I wonder if he would come on and uh, talk a little bit about what his plans are there. This is why I love having this specialist uh, here to break it all down for us. It's been great, guys. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Meg Terrell, Matthew Herper, and Alethea Young for this biotech edition of Rapid Fire. And still ahead, mortgage rates spiking this week, and they could keep climbing. What's behind the moves and what it means for the housing market right after this break? Welcome back, everybody. A sharp jump in mortgage rates overnight as bond rates have been on the rise. Let's get to Diana Olick with the numbers and the implications. Diana? Yeah, Kelly, the average rate on the popular 30-year fixed mortgage crossed back over 3%, jumping nine basis points yesterday alone. Take a look. We started this cycle down around 2.93% a week ago. Now we are at 3.13%. The move is both a reaction to the latest commentary from the Federal Reserve on when it will raise rates and when it will begin to taper its purchases of mortgage-backed bonds. Fed Chairman Powell indicated both would happen sooner than was widely expected. Mortgage rates loosely follow the yield on the 10-year Treasury, which just hit the highest level since July 2nd. Now, rates are also reacting to general news on COVID-19 and cases improved slightly this week. One note, low rates have been helping home buyers with today's crazy high prices. A new report out this morning showed the price of a new home sold in August up 20 percent from a year ago. Kelly. Wow. Diana, we appreciate it. Again, something we haven't had to contend with in a couple of months here. Diana Olick with the latest on the housing front. Up next, shares of Valley National Bank climbing today and up 10% this week. They just announced they're going to acquire Bank Liuma USA for a little more than a billion dollars. Valley National CEO Ira Robbins will join me next to discuss that and the bank's future right after this.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Growing competition from fintech is leading to a blockbuster year for bank consolidation. S&P Global projects more than $63 billion worth of bank mergers this year. That's actually the highest since the 08 financial crisis. And it includes Valley Bank, which just announced a bank merger with Bank Leumi USA to create the 29th largest U.S. bank by assets. The deal will help Valley grow its technology and venture capital business and is expected to close early next year. Valley shares are up 2% today, more than 30% this year. And for more, let's welcome in the president. President and CEO Ira Robbins. Ira, welcome back. So is, this is an Israeli bank or, or explain the story uh, here to me and why this makes sense for you as an acquisition. So Bank Leumi USA is a subsidiary, is their own privately chartered, uh, uh, domestically chartered bank here in the United States. Uh, there is a bank, uh, Blida, which is in Israel, but this is a separate organization. Uh, for us, as we think about our opportunities, you know, the banking landscape has dramatically changed over the last few years. Uh, historically, one will look at M&A and think about dots on a map and based on how customers really actually integrated with those organizations. Today, zip code geography, as I like to re- refer to it as, isn't as persistent as to how we historically thought about banking, more about business lines, more about how individual customers bank with us. And the branch really becomes the brand as opposed to the center of geography for each individual customer. And as we think about M&A, and it appears many of our peers are beginning to go down this path as well, the business line focus and the, and the ability to provide scale through those individual business lines is really what's driving a lot of the M&A activity today. It's everything that you describe, of course, we all know resonates is true, that this is the way that it works today. So how do you what are the advantages of that? What are the drawbacks? It basically means so you think about the cable industry, for instance, and they wherever they have their build out, that's kind of the monopoly. That's what the customer has to pick from. And then all of a sudden along comes streaming. So in a banking world where you know, it matters to some extent what my local bank is. Of course, it always kind of will. But all of a sudden, I can go online now and choose from a zillion wallets with crypto and all these other things going on. So what do you do as, you know, do you focus then on kind of competing with those major fintech players? Do you kind of look for B2B opportunities? And, you know, what, do you, what makes sense to you in this environment? That's a great question. I think a lot of question that many boards really battle with today as we think about all the different approaches that uh, companies take towards M&A. You know, for Valley, I think it goes down to the individual customer and what does that relationship look like from a value proposition perspective? And we were able to attract amazing talent in our organization. We think by merging with Bank Lumi, we'll be able to attract even, even greater talent that can then utilize some of that technology that we've been scaling up within the organization to provide an unbelievable customer uh, uh, experience. I think the one thing that you mentioned, though, is you talked about it being similar in a multitude of different industries. And it goes back to talent. And the challenge is it's not just in the banking space, but the technology talent and the ability to attract and retain that check, that technology uh, talent becomes greater and greater, not just in the banking space, but in all the other areas that you alluded to earlier. So it is a dramatic shift that's happening in the banking space. FinTech, really, I'm not looking at it really so much as a competition, really, but as an opportunity to really partner with some of these. And how do we create the infrastructure where, where we can be the partner of choice for many of the FinTechs? Yeah. And finally, what would you say about this technology focus that Bank Leumi itself offers? Why is that attractive to you? And what are Valley's ambitions here? Uh, it's, it's one of the definitely uh, key attractions that we have. First of all, they have an amazing team uh, located really out in California, as well as here in New York which is the initial attraction, uh, but they have relationships with a lot of the individual uh, companies that we think are going to have absolute growth potential that would be significant to us. So it's an area uh, from an economic perspective that we think is going to continue to grow. And for our shareholders, for our employees, for our communities, for our customers, it's important for us to make sure we have 
an unbelievable footstep into that business. And we think with thankfully me that we really provide that specific entree. We could be more yeah, it's been fascinating even to watch, you know, Boiling Springs becomes, you know, the reference, even Valley, the reference to the Valley. What does that even mean? Maybe it works for Silicon Valley for you as well. Ira, congrats again and thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Ira Robbins of Valley Bank. Up next, during the massive run-up in GameStop, Robinhood execs reassured users and the public its platform could handle the trades. But internal emails reveal panic behind the scenes. Those details and what it means for Robinhood next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Here's a quick market flash on Pacific Gas and Electric. The shares are down a little less than 1% right now after a Shasta County district attorney has charged a company with manslaughter and other crimes for the California wildfire that killed four people last year. It pled guilty to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter last year over a 2018 wildfire. So we've to some extent seen this story before with PG&E, those shares down 1% as we get the news. Meanwhile, shares of Robinhood are also lower today. They're still up this week after evidence in a class action lawsuit shows internal communication between executives is very different than their public messaging around the run-up in GameStop. Kate Rooney is here with that story for us. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Some of these internal messages between Robinhood executives back in January really contradict what the CEO told CNBC at the time. In these conversations, there's also some signs of panic over capital requirements during the GameStop short squeeze and some debates over how bad it could actually get. And on January 28th, the company's COO, Gretchen Howard, messaged internally that Robinhood had, quote, major liquidity issues. Vlad Tenev, meanwhile, denied that, pretty much said the opposite in an interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin at the time. On that same day, Robinhood did move some of the heavily shorted stocks like GameStop and AMC to position close only, meaning people could sell, but they couldn't buy. And in response to that move, another executive whose name was redacted says, quote, we are going to get crucified for the restrictions and that it was a, quote, horrible look for the wider brokerage industry. The COO of Robinhood Financial, that's a subsidiary of Robinhood, meanwhile, saying the company was, quote, too big for them to actually shut us down. I was referring there to the company's clearinghouse. And the plaintiff's lawyer in this case in the class action suit argues that Robinhood kept its doors open while unbeknownst to the general public, the platform was teetering on the verge of collapse. In response, Robinhood says we dispute the plaintiff's allegations. The communications are consistent with Robinhood's focus to take appropriate incremental measures to mitigate risk. Kelly. How much is at stake for them here, Kate? I mean, sometimes we get these big class action things where everyone, you know, gets $8 back for something that they purchased. I mean, they they have much bigger questions about regulation sort of hanging over them. And I wonder how this all fits into that. Right. Well, so they're suing for damages. The class action suit is one thing. They've faced a ton of other class action lawsuits, and these were sort of consolidated into one case. I think the bigger picture is some of the conversations back and forth. I'm told the SEC and FINRA have also seen these documents and these conversations. It will be interesting going forward if this plays into Gary Gensler's report or any decisions from the SEC or financial regulators to take any action and what they think versus the class action lawsuit. So we'll see if if there's ripple effects on this going forward. It's as much about what's decided here as how those other authorities interpret it. Absolutely. Kate, thanks for your reporting. We really appreciate it. Kate Rooney on the latest on the Robin Hood front. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.